0: If you'd read with me from 1 Samuel chapter 19 from verse 1. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. How many of you have ever been put in a place, in a position, uh, by someone in a position of authority over you where they asked you to do something maybe that was illegal, maybe that was unethical, something that you felt this is wrong, it's crossing the line, but yet you're being commanded, ordered to do it by someone in a position of authority over you. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was your parent. Uh, they asked you to do something that was wrong, something unethical, maybe downright illegal. That's a difficult position to be in, isn't it? And actually, you know what? That is a very common problem that many people face, especially in the workplace. Maybe some of you, statistically, probably some of you have faced that kind of situation in your workplace. Uh, I did some research on the internet and I found tons of forums where people were talking about how they face a dilemma in the workplace or in some organization because their boss or someone in authority over them was asking them to do something that was wrong. Maybe it was lying for them or or maybe it was covering something up and, and they were they were not sure what to do. I mean, they were asking for help on these internet forums. What do I do? If I do this, I may lose my job. I may be ostracized. I may have something happen to me. But it's wrong. Uh, but I'm yet I'm being told to do it. NBC News recently ran an article on this very issue in which they stated that uh, roughly ten percent of all employees reported being pressured at some point by a superior to do something unethical or illegal what are you to do in that kind of situation it's a difficult place to be in today as we continue in first samuel we're going to be looking at jonathan uh, the son of saul who is the king of israel and jonathan finds himself in that exact kind of situation he's being told to do something that's wrong But by his father, by his boss, by his king, what is he going to do? And we're going to see how Jonathan responded. And as we do that, we're going to be considering how we should respond as followers of Jesus when we are faced with evil, when we're faced with injustice, when we're faced with temptation to compromise. The title of today's message is, Taking a Stand for What is Right. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe some of you have heard that name, he was a German pastor and theologian who lived during the Nazi period in Germany, and, and he refused to be complicit with what the Nazis were doing, but even more than that, he took a very strong stand against the Nazis. He made it very vocal, he was very active in his stance against the Nazis, and, and as a result he was ultimately executed for it, but, but he took a stand for what was right. And this is what he said, and I think this is so key. And I really hope that we can just get this ingrained in our minds about what Christianity is all about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Being a Christian is less about cautiously avoiding sin than about courageously and actively doing the will of God. Man, that is so key. I want to get that ingrained in my mind. That is what being a Christian is about. It's not about a list of things I don't do or things I do. It's about courageously and actively doing the will of God. And you know what is the result if I'm occupied doing the will of God, then I won't have to try hard to cautiously avoid sin. It'll happen effortlessly, naturally because I'm busy doing something else, right? And here in this section, not only does Jonathan refuse to do what is wrong, but he is going to take a stand for what is right. He's going to courageously and actively do the will of God. Let's read again, verse 1. Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in Saul. From complete obscurity, David went from zero to hero overnight. Uh, He went from being a nobody. He was the youngest son uh, of a poor family who had been given the job, which in that society was considered kind of like the lowest possible rank in society. His job was to tend the sheep. He was a shepherd. But one day all that changed. David's future changed when he was launched into fame and celebrity when he that simple shepherd boy he, sh- he showed greater courage and bigger faith in God than anyone else in Israel when he fought and defeated Goliath and instantly David became a hero in Israel people loved David they sang songs about him in the streets he was an inspiration to the people of what it looks like to have bold trust in a great God and to really live out the implications of your faith In fact, one of the men that he inspired the most was a man named Jonathan, this man we read about here in verse 1. He was King Saul's son. And when Jonathan saw the faith and the heart of David, he was instantly drawn to him. He wanted to be around him because Jonathan had that same heart for God that David did. And David and Jonathan, they formed this instant bond and they formed this deep friendship that would last a lifetime and it was based on their shared desire to live life on fire for God to fully surrender everything in their life to the will of God, whatever that might be, wherever he might send them, whatever he might ask them to do. They were people who said, God, you are Lord of my life, and I lay everything down at your feet. I am yours. One mentor of mine used to always say this phrase, and it stuck with me. He said, God, my life is a penny in your pocket for you to spend anywhere and anyhow you please. But David's skyrocketing popularity was something which caused King Saul great consternation. It was a source of worry for him because Saul watched David become more successful and more popular. And and he began to become jealous of all the attention that David was getting that he was not getting. And David had obviously become more popular than Saul. And that caused Saul not only to be jealous of David, but it caused him to feel very much threatened by David's success. You know why Saul felt so threatened by David's success? One of the reasons is because this, many years before this, we read this in earlier chapters, Saul had turned his back on God. he had stopped listening to God. He had stopped obeying God. And he had gone his own way. He had turned his back on God. And at that point when, uh, when he did that, God spoke to him through the prophet Samuel. And he said, Saul, you've turned your back on me. And for that reason, your days as king are numbered. I'm going to raise up another man to be king instead of you, a better man, a man with a heart after my own heart, he, he will replace you as king. And so ever since then, Saul has been looking over his shoulder all the time, wondering who this person might be that God is raising up, this man of faith, this man after God's heart, who God is raising up to replace him as king. So when Saul sees David's rise in popularity, David, this man with bold faith in God, with a heart to live for God 100%, the, the heart that Saul does not have, Saul begins to wonder, is this the guy? Is this the man that God is raising up to replace me? And so we, we saw in last chapter that Saul, in his fear, in his insecurity, in his jealousy, he begins to start plotting against David and plotting and scheming ways that he can get rid of David so that he can hold on to his position of power and he started out by trying to figure out ways that he could kind of you know do it in a underhanded way right in indirect way so that he wouldn't have David's blood on his hands right so he could preserve his reputation so the first thing he did was he made David a captain in the army and then sent him out to war Now, David had never been a soldier before. He had no experience with this kind of thing. And and Saul was hoping that David's inexperience would lead to him being killed in battle. That's kind of what he was banking on. And Saul figured, hey, this would solve my problem. David would be a fallen hero. The people can still love him, but he'll no longer be a threat to my power, my kingdom. Everybody wins, right? Right? But that plan backfired, and in a big way, because David was wildly successful as a military leader, and it just caused people to adore David all the more. So Saul came up with another idea. He, he said, okay, I'm going to offer my, daughter, uh, my daughter's hand to, to David in marriage. Uh, But just a few days before the wedding was scheduled, really just a few days before their nuptials, right? Saul gave his daughter to another woman. He married her off to somebody else. Why? He's trying to provoke David to do something, trying to provoke him to anger, to get mad and cause David to do something that Saul can use against him to discredit him in the eyes of the people. But David didn't fall for the trap. It didn't work. So Saul comes up with another idea. He offers David his other daughter, Uh, in marriage. But if David wants to marry her, Saul says, you have to do a heroic feat for me. Here's the, here's the thing I want you to do. You go pick a fight with a hundred Philistines and you bring me their foreskins. Quite the picture, isn't it? Of course, uh, Saul was hoping that David would die in the course of doing this, um, you know, um, but once again, Saul's plan didn't work out. So none of Saul's underhanded schemes to get to David have worked. In fact, they've all backfired, and they've all caused David to become all the more popular amongst the people of Israel. So here at the beginning of chapter 19, Saul basically gets to the point where he says, you know what, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. So no more Mr. Nice Saul. Uh, If I want David dead, I'm just gonna have to get my own men to do it for me. I'm gonna have them assassinate David and so we read here in verse 1 that Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and all his servants that they should kill David what a difficult position this was for Jonathan to be in. what a difficult position it was for all the servants to be in. we read in a previous chapter that all the servants of Saul loved David what a difficult position this is here is their boss for Jonathan here's his father also the king and he's being ordered to kill his best friend not only is Jonathan uh, and not only is David Jonathan's best friend, but David and Jonathan have a very unique relationship. You see Jonathan, as the firstborn son of the king, he is the heir to the throne of Israel, but yet Jonathan has a heart for God, and Jonathan knows that God's hand is upon David, and that David is destined to become the next king and not him and, and Having that heart for God, Jonathan says. I'm okay with that whatever God wants I want whatever God wants I'm a penny in his pocket he can spend me wherever and however he pleases you see Jonathan much more than Saul Jonathan has more to lose from David's success Jonathan has more to gain from David's demise and you can imagine how Saul might have come over to Jonathan and said Son, look, here's the deal. I know you think that David's your friend, but Jonathan, you are supposed to become king. That's how it's supposed to work. Are you gonna let David just come in and, and take that right away from you just because you guys are buddies, right? David's a problem. He needs to go. He goes, son, I'm just doing this for you. I wanna see you take your rightful place on the throne of Israel. David's a problem. He needs to go. And son, I want you to be the one to do it. In fact, son, that is an order. When you get the chance, I order you to kill David. Don't you see it, Jonathan? You're the one in the perfect position to do this. David trusts you. You can get close to him. Oh, and by the way, son, he might have said, I've been doing a little Bible study lately, you know, digging into the word like I like to do, and I was reading the Ten Commandments, and and I read this one that said, you shall honor your father and mother. So, son, as your father... As your boss, as your king, you must submit to me. That is God's command, and I am ordering you to kill David. What a difficult position for anyone to be in. What is Jonathan to do in a situation like this? Is he supposed to submit to that? What a difficult position. But let's take a look at what Jonathan did from verse 2. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then, what I observe, I will tell you. Jonathan chose to disobey Saul's orders. He went and he told David about Saul's plans to kill him. Now, this is something which probably made Saul very angry. I mean, how could Jonathan betray him like that? His own son. Betraying him the king he, he's the father Saul was probably furious he Probably asked Jonathan whose side are you even on here I'm your father you should be on my side I'm the king you're blatantly disregarding disobeying my orders that I gave you you are aiding and abetting my enemy but Jonathan did though what he did was he took a stand for what was right He took a stand for what was right. The thing Saul was asking him to do was wrong. It was evil. Because God said, you shall not murder, right? In fact, in the Ten Commandments, that's the one that comes right after the one about obeying your father or honoring your father and mother. So Jonathan's faced with a situation here. (coughs) If he obeys Saul, he's disobeying God. And if he obeys God, he's disobeying Saul. Excuse me. <coughs> all right. Gather myself. Okay. Jonathan understands that he has a choice. He can't have his cake and eat it too. He's got to either obey God or either obey Saul. But when you put it in those terms, I mean, it's, a, it's an easy decision, right? It's not a, not a difficult one. It's a no-brainer. He has to obey God. You know, the Bible does teach that we are under authority, that all of us are under authority, and that... God has ordained an order of authority in various areas of life, and he expects us to submit to those authorities that he has placed in our lives. Uh, You know, he's ordered an order of authority, order of uh, authority in various areas of life, in family, within marriage, in society, in the workplace, even in the church. And he he instructs us to submit to the authority which he has established over us, right? Jonathan is under the authority of Saul as his father, as his boss, as his king. Jonathan has a responsibility and obligation to obey Saul and, and submit to him and his authority. But here's the thing. If an authority is telling you to do something, which is wrong, right, which is, which is even contradicts what God has told you to do, well, then you have to obey God first. It's very clear. If your boss is telling you to lie or an authority figure is, in your life, is instructing you to do something wrong or sinful, your first obligation is to God. Here's an example. You know, if the police tell you to do something, the Bible says, you should obey the police. But in the book of Acts, they were faced with an interesting situation. We read how the early Christians were told by the police that they should not teach or preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And that kind of thing still happens in many countries, in many parts of the world, even today. Well, that creates a bit of a dilemma, doesn't it? Because Jesus commanded his followers to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So if they do what Jesus told them to do, they will be disobeying the police. And if they do what the police tell them to do, then they will be disobeying Jesus. And so what do you do? Well, the early Christians, they told the police, they said, I'm sorry, but we must obey God and not men. And you say, well, hey, great. Good for them. Good job, guys keep up the good work. Awesome, right? Well, yes, but do you know what happened after that? Do you remember the rest of the story? They got beaten severely, right? Uh, that's, that's called taking your lumps for what you believe in. It's called taking your lumps for obeying God. Sometimes that's what happens when you take a stand for what is right. There, there might be difficult, maybe even uncomfortable, maybe even very difficult circumstances or consequences as a result. But like the apostles, Jonathan was willing to take his lumps for obeying God. Let me ask you, how about you? Are you willing to take some lumps in order to obey God? In order to courageously and actively do the will of God? Are you prepared to take on the consequences that might come if you take a stand for what is right in the face of evil, in the face of something that's wrong? But Jonathan did more than just not do the wrong thing. Jonathan did the right thing. He foiled Saul's plans by going and telling David, by tipping him off to what Saul was planning to do so that David could escape. You know, a lot of people faced with a situation like the one Jonathan was faced with here, they would say, look, I don't want any part of this. I'm just going to remove myself from the situation. This is an issue between the two of you guys. I don't want to be involved in your conflict. Keep me out of it, right? Uh, You know, I'm just I'm not gonna help my father do something wrong, but I'm not gonna do anything to stop it I'm just gonna remain neutral. I don't want to be involved, but Jonathan didn't take that approach He didn't just refuse to do what was wrong, he did what was right. He took a stand for what was right. You know, I mentioned earlier Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that German pastor who lived during the Nazi period, and during that time, you know, the attitude of many people, they were faced with a huge ethical dilemma, like what do you do in the face of of Nazism in your country, right? Well, during that time, the attitude of many people, many Christians in Germany was they were not willing to participate in the evil things that the Nazi regime was, was carrying out, but but yet they weren't willing to take a stand against it either. They, they said, we will just be neutral. We won't have anything to do with this. We'll stay out of it. But Bonhoeffer spoke to those people and he said this. It's something that applies to all of us, I believe. He said this, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Jonathan took a stand for what was right. He foiled Saul's evil plan, and he told David what was going on so David could escape. And there's, there's more even beyond that. Verse 4, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good towards you. Jonathan did more than just not help his father kill David he did more than just secretly give David information to help him out he went to his father and he confronted him about it he spoke well of David to Saul he said he said I want you to know dad I know you have a certain opinion about about uh, David but I don't share that opinion I love David I support David and you know what you should too you know that takes a lot of courage but it was the right thing to do. It was a wonderful thing for Jonathan to support David secretly when it was just him and David. You know, he goes out to David in secret and he tells him, David, I'm with you, man. I'm behind you. I'm praying for you. Let me give you some help so you can, you can get out of this situation. That's awesome. It's a wonderful thing for Jonathan to support David in secret. But it's another thing completely, a greater thing, a much more courageous thing for Jonathan to support David before others, even before others uh, who were against David. But you know, that, that's what supporting someone is really about. It's not just about what you say to their face when, it, when it's just the two of you. Supporting someone is also about backing them when, no one else is, when they're not around, when uh, people are talking about them behind them. That's what Jonathan is doing. Jonathan makes sure that his father Saul knows that he does not share the same opinion about David that he does. As Saul is there, he's certainly saying negative things about David, about how David's a problem, they need to get rid of him. Jonathan could easily just remain silent and keep his disagreement to himself. But but maybe you know what happens when you do that. Sometimes what happens is that your silence can be mistaken for agreement or even approval. Jonathan refused to remain silent, and I'm sure that was hard, but he comes back to his father and he says, Dad, you're wrong about David. This is all part of Jonathan taking a stand for what is right. Again, verse the end of verse four, he says, do not sin against David because he has not sinned against you. His works have been very good toward you. Jonathan was bold enough to tell his father that his anger and his jealousy against David was sin. Jonathan Delivered a needed word of correction, a rebuke, even to his father. That's not an easy thing to do for anybody. Especially, though, when your father is also your boss and also the king. Verse 5. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, that's Goliath. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. And you saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? Jonathan is is trying to bring Saul back to reality, right? He's trying to say, man, uh, hey, where what are you thinking? Come back, remember who David is. Remember David's not the enemy here. Saul you yourself rejoiced when David defeated Goliath. You yourself, uh, you know Saul, you, you used to love David you just like everyone else does for the same reason because he has this big heart for God and he says, Dad, David hasn't changed. David isn't your enemy. You've just let jealousy take root in your heart, and it has festered. It has festered into a hatred for David. And dad, that's just wrong. He says, dad, you know what? David is not the real problem here. The the real issue is an issue in your heart. You need to check your heart. You need to think about why it is that you hate David so much that you want to kill him. He says, I don't even think this is about David, Father. This is about you. This is about your insecurity. I wonder how many times the same is true of us, that when we harbor bitterness towards people in our hearts, that it's really less about them than it really is about an issue in our own hearts, uh, what's going on inside of us. You know, several times in this story, uh, we read a very sad phrase, and this is that Saul refers to David as his enemy. I think that's very sad because, in actuality, if you look at it, what you'll find is that David was probably the most faithful friend that Saul had. David did more to help Saul than probably anybody else in Saul's life. David stood by Saul, he ministered to Saul, he overlooked Saul's shortcomings. Even when Saul was trying to trip him up and make him fall, David remained naively loyal to Saul. You know, he says, Saul, do you need me to play music for you to soothe your spirit? Saul, do you need me to kill a giant? I'll do it, anything. Do you need me to go to war for you, Saul? I'll do it. But yet Saul sees David as his enemy, even though David never considers Saul an enemy. Saul's hatred of David really isn't about David. It's about an issue in Saul's heart. I wonder if you've ever experienced something like that, where you've loved someone, but yet they consider you an enemy. I think this happens a lot in regard to how people view God. Some people view God as an enemy, as an adversary, as someone who is against them. When the truth is that God loves them so much, he's so for them that they can't even begin to imagine it. Check out how Saul responds to Jonathan's rebuke. It's surprising, actually. So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David and Jonathan told him all these things so Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past I love the heart of Jonathan is the heart of reconciliation he wants to reconcile these two people he wants to see repentance take place he wants to see forgiveness take place you know reconciliation is at the very heart of the gospel Jesus said blessed are the peacemakers Paul the Apostle said that God has entrusted us as followers of Jesus with a ministry of reconciliation to bring people back to God to reconcile people to God I love Jonathan's heart but I also love the heart of David because Jonathan comes to him and he says David I talked to my dad and he listened to me and he repented of his attitude towards you and his plans to kill you and David I would like it if you would come with me I'd like it if you'd come with me to talk to my dad and and give him the chance to apologize to you and and forgive him David If you're willing to do that David if you're willing to let bygones be bygones and go back to the way that things used to be would you be willing to do that David and David says yes I'll do that that's amazing really I mean I love the heart of David this is the heart of a man after God's heart a lot of people in this situation would say this man tried to assassinate me he put a hit out on me right Uh, he ordered people to kill me I'm not just going to forgive him and go back to th- how things used to be. I can't just pretend that that didn't happen. What assurance do I have that he's not just going to do it again? You know, if someone were to respond that way, I think most of us would say, well, that's completely understandable, right? I mean, who would blame you if you didn't want to have anything to do with the guy who just tried to kill you, right? It makes sense. But, but David has the heart a man after he's a man after God's own heart he has a heart for God and, and he is willing to go back into Saul's presence and to reconcile their relationship he's willing to accept an apology and forgive him of something even as heinous as trying to murder him and he gives him another chance you know what assurance does David have that Saul isn't gonna do this again he has none none at all this is a picture of radical forgiveness this is a picture of Christ like forgiveness C.S. Lewis said this, he said, To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. I love David's heart, and, and I love Jonathan's heart, but you know what? I also love Saul's heart here. Saul has enough humility to receive a rebuke from his son to really consider it and to repent and ask for David's forgiveness. You know what? It takes a big person to be that humble, to be humble enough to receive a rebuke and not just dismiss it, you know, like whatever, but actually to take it to heart. And if there's something to it, to to humble themselves enough to repent and ask forgiveness. You know, this is one of the requirements of the gospel. If you want to receive God's grace towards you, you have to be willing to humble yourself before God. You have to be willing to receive the rebuke of the gospel. The gospel gives you a rebuke. It says, you have sinned. You have sinned, you have fallen short of the glory of God, and you are not good enough to save yourself. You are not good enough to earn God's favor. You're not good enough to earn eternal life, no matter how hard you try. But the good news of the gospel is that it has been purchased for you by Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And if you will come to God and you will humble yourself and confess your sins and repent, then God will forgive you of all your sins and he will place his favor upon you. And he will give you life everlasting but it takes a big person to have that much humility to receive a rebuke and it takes a big person to humble themselves and ask for forgiveness not everybody's willing to do that and that's what keeps many people from receiving the gospel but little do they know that it's by humbling yourself before God that you really begin to live here are these three men this is a good moment right This is something we can learn from each of these men in this moment. We can learn from Jonathan what it means to take a stand for what is right. And we can learn from David what it means to have a heart of radical forgiveness. And we can learn from Saul the importance of receiving a rebuke and what it looks like to have the humility to repent and apologize. But think about this. Why did Jonathan stand by Saul and plead his case? Well, it tells us why. In verse 1 it says... It was because Jonathan delighted greatly in David. The prince pleaded the case of David because he delighted in him. And another place says that he loved him as his own soul. What a picture this is of Jesus Christ, of our prince, right, who delights in you. Do you know that, that God delights in you? Do you know that he loves you so much that he came to your defense? He laid down his life for you. He delights in you, and because of that, he advocates for you. Like Jonathan advocated for David, Jesus Christ advocates for you because he delights in you. 1 John 2 says, My little children, I write you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for your sins. I'm going to finish with three more verses. Verse 8 says this, Once again there was war, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. After this great moment, this great reconciliation, the repentance, the forgiveness, the embracing, Saul once again throws it all out of the window, right? He just throws it all out. He's in a place of spiritual attack. And and once again, as David is holding the harp, the instrument of worship, the instrument of healing, Saul is holding an instrument of war, an instrument of violence. He's holding a spear in his hand. Saul's in a bad place he's being tempted he's under spiritual attack it's not a good idea to have spears close by when you're in a bad place like that you know that and that's true for any of us if you're in a weak place spiritually you're feeling tempted it's not a good idea to have spears or bottles or whatever it is for you laying readily available you know things might have been different this night if Saul would have told he would have made a decision beforehand said men it's not good for me to have spears laying around the house especially when i'm in one of those moods when i'm having difficulty when i'm in distress it's so important to know what your weaknesses are and not set yourself up for failure when you're in a weak place spiritually a difficult place emotionally because once the spear is thrown it can't be unthrown this is the third time saul has thrown a spear at david and at this point david runs away He flees the palace. David will not return to this palace for many years. Some estimate up to 20 years, probably somewhere in between 10 and 20 years. From this point on, David will live as a fugitive for the rest of Saul's life until Saul dies. Saul is going to be chasing him, hunting him, and David will be hiding out in caves, running away from Saul who's bent on killing him. It will be over a decade before David returns to this palace and he's only going to return once Saul has died and he returns as king of Israel. But for now, David is gone and Saul is left alone with his spears. David was probably scared that night. He was probably angry. He was probably hurt when he left the palace. He probably thought, Lord, What's, what's, what is this? I thought you were on my side, God. I thought that you, you told me that you were preparing me to be the next king of Israel, that my place was here in the palace. Now everything is falling apart. What's going on, God? Why are you letting this happen? If David didn't ask that question that night, I guarantee you he asked it many times, many nights over the, the next 10 years or so that he lived as a fugitive. Why, God? Why are you letting this happen? You know what was going on here? David said, I thought you were preparing me to be king. That's exactly what God's doing. That's exactly what God's doing. God's preparing David to be the next king of Israel. There's a classic book by Alan Redpath on this section of 1 Samuel, and the title of the book is The Making of a Man of God. The Making of a Man of God. And you know what? God doesn't make men of God and women of God in palaces. God makes men of God and women of God in palaces. Out with the sheep, being a shepherd. He makes them in caves, hiding out for their lives. He makes them in the wilderness, being a fugitive. Have you noticed that David keeps ending up in these impossible situations, right? Just one after another, just one crisis after another. But you know what? This is how the Lord is shaping him into a man of God. That's how God is preparing David to be the man that he wants him to be, a king after his own heart. He's teaching David how to depend on him alone. He's teaching David lessons about faithfulness. He's teaching David to come to him in times of need, to depend on him, to make him his rock and his strength. These are lessons that can't be learned in the comfort of a palace. These are lessons that are learned in caves. These are lessons that are learned in the forest hiding out for your life, right? These are lessons that you learn when you have nobody and nothing else to turn to but the Lord. And God is working in David's life. Even if David doesn't realize it even in this moment, he doesn't see the whole picture. Saul meant this for evil against David, certainly. He wasn't saying, how can I be used by God in David's life? Oh, I'll throw a spear at him, he'll run away, and then God will work in his life. Awesome, thanks Lord. But he meant this for evil, for sure. But he ended up becoming the tool of God in David's life to shape David into a man of God. Saul meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, and God is big enough to work all things together for good in my life, in David's life, and in your life. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness towards us. We thank you for your grace towards us. We thank you, Lord, that you are big enough to work all things together for good, for your glory, and for our good. Thank you, Lord, that you love us that way. Lord, thank you that you are our prince like Jonathan who comes to our defense, who advocates for us. Thank you, Lord, that you came and died for us that we might be free. You paid that price for us. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has not yet given their heart to you, like David, like Jonathan, Lord, would you do that work in their heart before they even leave this place? Lord, would they make that decision that yes, I will follow Jesus. But thank you for who you are and all you've done for us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.